All right, let's take our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel, we're going to be there in chapter number 9 and begin in verse number 18. Luke chapter 9 this morning, and I told you on Wednesday that the messages today were really going to be geared Wednesday night as well uh, on this focus in the start of the new year and how we start years and, uh, and uh, kind of challenging us to do uh, those types of things. And so I'm not much on resolutions, but I am big on goal setting. Uh, and so, and knowing where I want to be whenever this year, I look at where we finish the year, uh, where I am right now, where I want to be at 12 months from now, and realize that if I don't set some goals, and I'm never going to get there, and I've got to get there on purpose. I'm not going to get there by accident. Uh, and so, we're going to look at some of those types of things this morning, tonight. Really, tonight or this morning is more fundamental uh, because if if how I answer the question. Uh, that I posed by title this morning is really going to determine everything else in my life. And so bear with me with this water. I'm, I'm uh, <clears throat> getting better, but I'm still not quite, uh, still not quite shaking this cough. And so Luke chapter nine uh, and verse number eighteen, uh, as we begin here this morning, and the Bible says, and it came to pass as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him. And he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? And they answering said, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders of the chief priests and the scribes and be slain. And be raised the third day. And I want to speak to this morning on this thought by way of a question. Who is he to you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time again this morning. I pray that you'd bless it. Bless your word. Lord, I pray that you'd challenge our hearts, our thinking. Lord, I pray that you'd encourage us, inspire us, Lord. That I want to develop our relationship with you. To see you truly for who you are, all that you are, not just an element of it. Uh, Lord, and realizing that how we see you will impact how we live our lives. In Jesus' name, and amen. <coughs> Excuse me. And so when we look here, Jesus is alone with his disciples. And I realize this is a very familiar uh, passage of scripture. We see it in other gospels where uh, it's added to, uh, it, where he elaborates more. The other writers elaborate more on the surrounding circumstances here. Uh, and Luke, Luke doesn't. Luke just kind of restricts it to the question. He doesn't build upon that Jesus is going to build the church and all of those types of things. Uh, he just keeps it here. Jesus is here alone. They're praying. Uh, and he's concluding his prayer. And as he concludes his prayer, he asks a question. But the question that he asks is not the question that he wants to ask. The question that he asks is a leading question. It is, a, it is leading to the real question. And so a lot of times it, you have to understand when, you, when you're dealing with someone, when you're, when you're counseling or you're trying to lead someone to Christ, or, uh, you, you have to get them to, to the point where they're ready for the real question. Uh, not by manipulation or tricks, but simply getting their focus and their thoughts on the right wavelength by asking other questions. And that's really the tactic that the Lord employs here. He's praying. He's with his disciples. He's not with a large crowd. Uh, he, is not, he is not at the moment uh, interacting with uh, a lot of different people. They are alone. He took some time to be alone to instruct them individually, per personally, uh, and as a small group here. Uh, but he's praying. 
And then when he finishes the prayer, he looks up at them and he says, all right, fellas. Uh, he said, we're, we're praying. We've been busy in ministry. Uh, we've, you, you've seen all of these things that have been going on since we've assembled and I've called you. Uh, who, do you who do people say that I am? And so they answered him and they said, well, some say that you're a prophet and some think that you're John the Baptist and some think that, uh, that you're Elijah. Uh, and so but then he asked the real question. All right, now that's who they say that I am. Who do you say that I am? Well, we believe that you're the Christ. We believe that you're the Son of God. We believe that you're the Messiah, uh, the called one of the Lord. And so the question, this question is the real question. It really doesn't matter who other people say that he is. And so when Jesus asked them the question, who do men say that I am? It was a good question. It got them thinking along those terms and along those lines. But it really doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. And so when Jesus looks at them and he tells them, who do men say that I am? He's prepping them for who do you say that I am? Because it doesn't matter this morning what the world or who the world thinks Jesus is. It doesn't matter this morning who extended family members think Jesus is. It doesn't matter this morning who co-workers think Jesus is in relation to my relationship with him. Now, it's important that I live in a way that draw them to him, but that's not the question that Jesus is posing here. The question is, who do men say that I am? And the reason that that's so vital and important is because the way that I answer that question is going to shape my values. It's going to shape my goals. It's going to shape my, my ambition. It's going to shape what I do, how I do it, and why, uh, why I do what I do and live the way that I live. So he says, who, who do you say that I am? He said, listen, you've been out here. You've seen me cleanse the lepers. We've been going about and, and, and you've seen people that, uh, that have a disease that's incurable, that have to live out in a colony, uh, separated and isolated from society, that when they come in to, to, to do their work and to, uh, to, to conduct their business, they have to come along and they have to say uh, that I, I'm unclean so that people can scatter and distance. It kind of is a lot of, uh, a lot of relating to what we've been going through for the last couple of years. Imagine going into the store and not having to wear a mask, but uh, going in and saying, I'm unclean. And watch everybody scatter and hide behind the other row uh, and then walk out with the, the can of Lysol in front of them as they come and re-inhabit it once you've cleared the area. Uh, it's, it's kind of the, the way that they would go. They had to announce that they were there and that they were, uh, that they were carrying an infectious disease. And Jesus said that, that this was something that was incurable. Now, that's really magnificent in the fact that there are laws within the Mosaic Law uh, in which they were to offer sacrifices if they were cured of leprosy, even though outside of the few people that Jesus cured and Naaman, there's no evidence or there's no record of anyone else being cured. Unless I'm overlooking someone. But it was, if, it was, if it did happen, and when it happened, it was very rare. It was not the norm. It wasn't common. Uh, there were a lot of things that were common. There were a lot of things that would be commonly healed or commonly cured. And, uh, and there were a lot of things that they would say, okay, well, now this has happened and your uh, time of purification has passed. Go and offer this sacrifice. But leprosy was, uh, was allowed for because Jesus knew that he was going to take care of this. And all the way back whenever it was all put together, he wanted to make allowance for this being a testimony and a shining of the light in the darkness where he would come and say, hey, uh, go and show yourself to the priest. Don't tell the world, but go show yourself to the priest. Offer the appropriate sacrifice stating, hey, Messiah is here. God is here. 
Something that can't be fixed is fixed. Something that can't be cured is cured. By the way, leprosy is a symbol of sin in the Bible. And so whenever he cured something miraculously, it was a symbol of how your sin and my sin had to be cured miraculously. I cannot cure my own sin. It doesn't matter how good I live or how, uh, how, how much I clean my life up or how holy I make myself uh, on the surface. Nothing is good enough to cleanse away my sin except the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's the miraculous work of God that saves the soul, that forgives sin, that cleanses and washes it away. And Jesus looks at them and he says, listen guys, uh, we, you've been with me. You've heard me teach. You've heard me preach. You've seen how I uh, am compassionate to people, how I love them, even those that are not loving to me. Uh, though sometimes he spoke sternly and harshly even to the Pharisees and the Sadducees whenever it was, whenever it was warranted. He said, I've, I've, as much as they were allowed me, I treated them with dignity and with respect and answered questions. You've seen me heal leprosy. You've seen me go to the common sick person and make them well. You've seen as the word got out how people dropped what they were doing and they began to rush to me and they began to come to me and they began to line things up. As a matter of fact, there are times in the Gospels where it's recorded that, uh, that Jesus wanted to cut off what he was doing and go and rest or go and eat or go and do other things. Uh, but he couldn't because the people just kept coming. And he stayed until everyone's need was met. Uh, and he uh, would be exhausted, and, uh, and, and, but he was healing. He made the sick well. They saw him walk up to those who were crippled, those who had deformities, those that you could look at and say, there's no way that that person will ever walk or will ever be able to use that limb or uh, ever be able. But they saw him speak or in times touch and, uh, and saw that, that bone restored and that which was maimed straightened out and that which was, uh, that was without flesh added flesh to in a miraculous way that only God could do. They saw that. They saw the dead raised to life. They saw storms and the open water calmed. They saw demons cast out. They saw 5,000 and 4,000 at different times fed with just a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. They saw all of those things. But many of the people had seen those things on some level too. And he says to them, who do they say I am? That's good, fellas. But it really doesn't matter. Who am I to you? And my question this morning, and the message this morning as we begin a new year, is who is Jesus Christ to you? Not to your spouse, not to your children, not to your neighbor, not to your co-worker, but to you. Who is Jesus to you? In John chapter number 6, it's not the same uh, story uh, as far as it's not just a rehearsal of the same event where Jesus says to them, uh, who, they, who do you say that I am? But it is a confession of who he is. In chapter 6 and verses 67 through 69, Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And so they make the statement that, hey, we believe it doesn't matter who forsakes you. It doesn't matter who goes another way. It doesn't matter uh, who, uh, who uh, just uh, shuns you and walks away from what you've taught them or what you've invested in them. What matters this morning is that we know that you are the Christ, that you are the eternal king, the eternal son of God. And so we're going to consider this morning the questions uh, based upon uh, four questions uh, that, that we see stepped out here in our text. Uh, what he, when we look and we consider that he says, who do they say that I am? And some say that you're a prophet. Some say you're Elijah. They counted John the Baptist a prophet. And so I would ask the question first of all this morning, do you call him prophet? Do I call him prophet? By the way, he is a prophet. It, it's not a false assumption or evaluation. He is a prophet. He is the prophet. And when we look at, uh, at what God is and we look at the question, uh, I would ask this morning, do I call him prophet? As I look at my own heart and I evaluate my own life and my own motives and my own agenda and my own goals, my own dreams, and I look and uh, look at the, the vision for the church in this year and the vision for, for our own lives in this year, do I look at the Lord Jesus Christ and say, you're the prophet? He is. But he's more. And so the problem is not that some of the people looked and said, yeah, he's a prophet. He was a prophet. The problem is, is that, that that's all he was. And so when we consider what are we talking about in a prophet, a prophet by saying he's a prophet, we're saying, yeah, he's a good man. Listen, Jesus is a good man. That's not a wrong statement. But he's more than man. And so there are religions in the world that look at Jesus and they don't deny his existence. They don't, de they don't say that there's no value to his message. Uh, even Islam would look at, uh, while they shun Christianity and consider us infidels, there's a level of respect <coughs> to Jesus as a prophet and a teacher. And so uh, when we look and say, hey, he's a good man, he's a teacher, that's an accurate assessment. Prophets whether it's Muhammad or whether it's Jesus or whether it's you name one, are men who are a moral compass. They give a compass of morality to their followers. And so whenever he looks at them and they say, well, some say that you're a prophet. What, what they're saying and assessing is, is that he gives me some direction. He gives me some moral value, some moral uh, idea to wrap my life around and to, uh, and to follow after. And to some, they're just mythical legends. There are some that, I mean, really, you get down to it and they're, uh, they're, they don't even really, uh, they believe in the teaching, but they really don't believe in the person anymore that's so far removed and so distant that they have no real concept and he's just a, uh, just a legend. And I'm going to tell you this morning, Jesus is not a legend. But he is a prophet, and he is a teacher, and he is a great moral compass. But two thoughts about this this morning, uh, and two questions that I would ask whenever we, uh, when we look at this, and, and understanding the context here is that, is he a prophet? Yes, but is he more than that? And the danger is, is that whenever my life looks at Jesus, and that's all I see him as, is a moral compass, when all I see him as is a good teacher, when all I see him and all he is practically to my life, day in and day out, is someone that guides my morality, and someone that teaches me some principles to live by, those are wonderful things, but that's not all that he is. 
Is he more to you this morning, first of all, than a Santa Claus? It's, it's not too far removed from Christmas to pose that question. Is Jesus more to me than Santa? Hey, listen, we had a great, I know a lot of people don't agree with this, and that's okay. You can disagree if you want. Uh, we never, we, we never, you know, got into the thing of trying to convince our kids that he was real. But while they, uh, while they did, we just had fun with it. We never didn't teach that Jesus was Christ and everything. Well, I was walking through the neighborhood yesterday, and I saw one of my neighbors had Santa kneeling down at the, at the manger, uh, worshiping Jesus. And I thought, uh, you know, it's not, uh, it's not a great thing, but it's not a bad thing. It's just the idea of that all of our ideology bows to Christ. And whether it's something you, you just do for fun or whether it's something that uh, it, it just is, if it bows to Christ. I'm just saying this morning that we sometimes look at Jesus as nothing more than a mythical figment of our imaginations. He's just this name that's out there. He's just someone that we would read about, someone that we uh, read about. And I like those kind of stories, too. I was driving not that long ago across West Texas, and I crossed the Pecos River, and I thought, you know, my kids, my grandkids have no, absolutely no idea who Pecos Bill is. I need to find some books about Pecos Bill and bring them in and start reading the grandkids. Uh, and so I, I love stories like Paul Bunyan and people like that and, uh, and you know, Rip Van Winkle and all the whole uh, nine yards. And so I could use about a good 20 years sleep some weeks. And so, uh, and so you know, we, we look at uh, Rip Van Winkle. Uh, when you look at these things and say, is that all that he is to me? Now, none of us would say, no, that's, the, that's what Jesus is to me. But I'm not talking about what we say verbally. I'm talking about how we live actually. How do I live my life? How do I value, develop my values? Do I develop them? Do I live as if he's my real, true, one and only Lord, God, and Savior? Or is he just a prophet? Is he just some mythical figure? Someone that I like to think about? Jesus has to be more to me than just some random mythical figure. Secondly, I would say this, prophets have great influence. We talk about prophets. Do I call him prophet? Prophets have great influence. Look at Muhammad. Muhammad was a prophet. <coughs> He's counted, accepted as a prophet. He's a prophet of Islam. How many millions across the world for generations have followed tenaciously his teaching? I, I'm just saying this morning that a prophet has influence. How many people follow Confucius? How many people would bow and worship Buddha? Prophets in their own right. They have influence. And the reality is, is that in Christendom, Jesus has influence. Whether, whether it's biblically correct, whether it's biblically incorrect, it's influenced on some level by Jesus. Listen, I, I, I want to be influenced by Jesus. But I don't want being influenced by Jesus to be the end of the relationship. I, I don't want it to be the be all and the end all of how far I go with Christ. And when I look and say that the, a prophet and realize that a prophet has influence, I would ask the question this morning, does Jesus Christ mean more to you? Has he had a greater impact on your life than mere influence? Has he impacted you more than uh, a, a, a somebody that God put in your life that was in a, in a turning point in your life someday? 
I could look back at my life and I could, I could look at uh, a youth pastor or a pastor or a ball coach or, or, or someone that at a crucial moment in my life, God interjected them into my life. And at a time when I easily could have turned the wrong way, they helped me stay the course. They had great influence in my life, for which I'm grateful, by the way. But that influence was just that. It was influence. Is it a bad thing? No, it's a good thing. It was a necessary thing. It was something that God used in a great way, but that's not the end of it. And there's a real danger if I set out on this new year and all Jesus is to me is influence. I have several books. Uh, I say several, probably about three or four that I read at the beginning of every year or endeavor to. And so I, uh, I'll, I'll get started and I'll, uh, I'll go through. It helps me reset my thinking. It helps me reevaluate my, uh, my schedule, my structure, my, uh, my way of study, my, everything about how I go about uh, my week-to-week my -week operations throughout the year. And it's just a good time to just stop and reflect and to evaluate and to reassess. And it helps me remember those things. My mind's not as sharp as it used to be. I have a hard time uh, remembering small details if too much time has passed. And uh, I have to go back and reread so I can be re-reminded. So I can get my, uh, my attention focused back on, uh, on those things. And what am I saying? I'm saying that uh, there are certain men, men who I've never met, who influence my life greatly. And I'm grateful for that. But that's not the deciding factor of my life. Does Jesus influence Christianity? Yes. But if that's all he does, there's a problem. And if all Jesus is to me is a prophet, he will positively impact my life, but I'll never become what he wants me to be. I'll never fulfill his call in my life. I'll never fulfill what he's designed and desired me to become. Do you call him this morning prophet? Secondly, I would ask this question, do you call him Savior? I would hope so. I would hope that all of us here this morning could say that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior, that I have recognized that I was a sinner, that I have recognized that I uh, am depraved and destitute of God, that I cannot do anything to save myself or to obtain forgiveness of sin other than to turn to Christ in faith, to ask and seek his forgiveness, and to accept the gift of eternal life that he provided by, to me by his death on the cross and his resurrection. I would hope all of us would say, yes, Jesus is my Savior. And if you can't say that now, I hope that you won't leave today until you can. And so you, you can know without any doubt, biblically, uh, that Jesus Christ is your Savior and that heaven is your home. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to wonder about that. And there's not anything that you can do uh, to make it happen other than trust Him and put your faith in Him. Do you call Him Savior? A savior is someone who prevents my destruction. So when we talk about a savior in the, in the sense of the literal sense of the defining of the word, what we're talking about is someone who, who, who saves me and prevents my destruction. <coughs> we have uh, yeah, Brother Roger over here and Brother JP out in the lobby guarding the door. And, uh, and they, have, they have both retired law enforcement officers who have saved many people from destruction in the course of their career. We've got Brother Mike back here uh, who is a firefighter. And uh, Brother Paul often that's over here, he's not here today, uh, who's a firefighter. Who You could be fair to say that there are people that they have gone into burning structures and they have saved them from destruction. 
in that sense of the word and true to the definition of the meaning of the word Savior, they are a Savior. But they're not the Savior. And Jesus Christ is our Savior. I hope that Jesus Christ has prevented your destruction in hell. A Savior is someone who for the moment has changed my course. You could also look at someone who perhaps is a counselor, someone that is intervening in someone's life, someone that uh, jumps in and uh, intervenes and causes someone to reevaluate, to take stock of what they're doing and how it's going to impact their life and their future going forward. And you love them enough and you care enough for them that you stop in and say, hey, if you continue to do this, then this is going to happen to you and your life is going to be destroyed and ruined. Uh, and for the moment they listen and they, uh, they chart a new course and they begin to, uh, to uh, do things in a better way. And you could say, that that person for the moment is their savior but they're not the savior see for some people Jesus is just that for some people Jesus is just someone who posed an intervention in their life at a crucial time and they looked at him and they saw value in him and they, uh, they allowed him to have some influence and some impact in their life and it changed the course of their life for a while but where will they be five years from now where will they be 10 years from now? See, genuine salvation is going to constitute a lifelong change in relationship with a Savior. And I'm not saying this morning that someone that, uh, that, that backslides and gets a, that, that, that somehow impacts their salvation. That's not the point this morning. The point is, is that the true relationship with Christ, when Jesus Christ becomes my Savior, is for the intent of leading me, not just from the, saving me from the destruction of my sin, but to leading me from a life that is free from the bondage of that sin, so that I can honor and glorify Him and produce fruit that remains on His behalf. As he lives and works through me. Do I call him savior? Two thoughts this morning. And the first one we've already kind of asked it. Is he your savior? Is he not just a savior? Is he your savior? It's personal. No one can receive Jesus Christ for you but you. No one knows truly what you've done with Jesus in your heart but you. I can think that I know. I can look and I can make a determination based upon the evidence that I see. But that can be deceiving. You know and Jesus knows whether or not he is just a savior or whether he is your savior. And it's wonderful and people come to church for long periods of time and say, yeah, I, I, God, God spoke to me and I learned this and I learned that. And then they come to the point where they just say, you know what? I'm not really sure. Listen, he's not meant and he didn't come to just be a savior. Do you realize that hell is going to be filled with people that are going to look at him on judgment day and they're going to say he was a savior. But he wasn't my savior. And how many times you look at someone and they say, you're, you're, there, there's, uh, there's your savior, but he's not my savior. There's acknowledgement that he's a savior, but is he my savior? I need him to be my savior. I need to be saved from my sin. I need to have my life changed. I need to be made a new creation in Christ. Second question I would ask is this. Has time and distance turned him into only a fond memory? <clears throat> you look at your life this morning and you would say that 10 years ago, Pastor, I was a lot closer to Jesus than I am today. Five years ago, I was a lot hungrier to learn about him. 
Six months ago, I was a lot more committed to giving my heart and life to him, to pleasing him. I've drifted. I've, I, I'm, listen, time and distance cause things to turn into just fond memories. I popped in a, an old VHS tape the other day. My Aunt Rita that, uh, that uh, had to move away this summer because of health reasons. <clears throat> she, she was famous. She got the old 8mm cameras when they came out in the 70s. And they're silent and she'd, she'd walk around and she was just constantly, she's not hardly in any of them because she was always tormenting everybody else with them. And she's chasing everybody else through the house. And, uh, and I have fond memories of uh, childhood Christmases at my grandparents' house. And all the cousins coming together and all the way that we did this and the way that we did that. And I think I suspect everyone here uh, could say that they have the similar, similar memories. And it's just something different to look and to see it again. Uh, to look at yourself as a child, you know, 50 years ago and to look and see, uh, to see uh, how people have changed and to miss those that are no longer with us and to, uh, to remember how things once were. Uh, those are all good things and they're good memories, but, you know, seeing them on film makes them more alive. It makes them more real. It makes it, it refreshes them. It freshens the memory. Uh, and if I go for years and years and years and uh, never go back and look at them, then those things begin become foggy and faded. And yes, they're still a memory, but they're, they're a distant memory. I miss the details and I can't fill in a lot of the blanks. And I find myself even now looking at some of those and saying, I can't quite remember who that person was or how they were connected. They were extended members of the family or maybe a family friend that, that was close to everyone at one time that hasn't been seen for at this point decades and say who who were they and how did they fit and what happened to them and I wonder where they are now is it a memory yes it's a fond memory it's a but it's a distant memory listen Jesus doesn't want to be a fond distant memory in your life and I should not be able to go through nor should I want to go through the year allowing my relationship with God to become something that was just a distant and a fond memory. I want it to be something that's real and fresh and that's alive. That captivates my heart and my soul. Do I call him savior this morning? Do I call him prophet this morning? I hope so. But I hope that's not all I call him. Thirdly this morning I would ask this. Do you call him Lord? See a Lord is someone to whom I must submit. Last, I think it was last year, one of my daughter's. Uh, get, bought me a subscription to uh, Ancestry.com. And so when I, I got it, I thought, I'm not really sure how much I, I'm interested I'm going to be in this. As it turns out, I spent probably within a couple of days about four or five hours nonstop on the thing. And I actually traced one side of the family all the way back <clears throat> to southern England in the early 1500s. And the, the, the time of, you know, serfs and lords and all that stuff. We were serfs. And so uh, we, we were, uh, you know, just on someone else's land, planting a crop, depending upon their good blessing and goodwill to allow us to do so for our survival. That's a lord. A lord is someone to whom I must submit. A Lord is someone on whom, upon whom I depend for provision. Is Jesus my Lord? I hope so. But I hope that my relationship with him isn't isolated to my dependence upon him and my submission to him. 
See, I could submit to him because I feel that I'm oppressed to do so. You go back and you study the time period and you'll find that there were people there and that that was all they knew and that was the only thing available to them and it was either submit to the will of the Lord of the land uh, or be cut off and starve. Did they submit? Yeah. Because they didn't have a choice. May I say to you that God's Jesus isn't that kind of a Lord. We always have a choice. And I don't want my relationship with him. I, I want to be submitted to him. I want my will to be surrendered to his. I, I want to depend upon him for provision. But I want to do so because I love him, not because I feel oppressed to. And the difference here would be is that there are a lot of people that sit in churches today who do so simply because they feel like they are oppressed to do so. It's what the family's always done. This is where we've always gone. This is what we've always done. And I'll, I'll feel guilty or I'll feel this or I'll feel that if I don't. Listen this morning, that's not the relationship and that's not the Christian life that Jesus Christ has for you. It's better to do that than to not be where you hear the word of God preached at all. At least in that mode, God can still has an opportunity to speak to your heart. But, it's, but it, is a, it is a subpar Christian life and it's not the life that he wants us to live. Is your obedience, first of all this morning, an obedience out of obligation? Am I obedient to God out of obligation? Better to obey out of obligation than not at all. God still can bless me on some level if I'm obedient to him. But it's a whole lot better to obey to show my love. To please, to show honor. To please him, uh, to show that, uh, that I'm committed to him. Is my obedience out of obligation? Secondly, I would say, is my relationship dependent upon what I receive? I wonder this morning how many people sit in churches all across the world simply because they need something from God. I, I've seen that for 20 years as a pastor. I've seen people come. I've, I, I've seen them have be very desperate. I, I've seen parents come uh, who have adult children that, are, uh, that they're losing to drugs and to alcohol and, uh, and prison and their lives are going down the tubes and they're raising their grandchildren and they've got to deal with all these different kinds of problems and they, they haven't been to church in years and when things get to the breaking point, they've showed up at church. And they've made decisions and they've wept sincerely in the altar praying for their children and they've, uh, they've come. I remember one family distinctly at our church in Arkansas and, and I, both of them are with the Lord now and, uh, and they would come in praying for their kids or grandkids. And at one point I even was hosting a, uh, a fellowship for other preachers in one day. And, uh, and he showed up and he kind of barged in and interrupted the thing because he was so broken and devastated. And just asking all of these people, he was that desperate that he just kind of intruded in uh, uninvited and, uh, and kind of seized the floor for a moment. And, uh, and because he was desperate to, to cry out to the, some pastors from around the state, would you please pray for my, uh, for my kids because this is what they're into and this is what they're going through and they were like that for about two or three years and then all of a sudden one day they just didn't show up and so we went to see him and we talked and they were just you know we gave God two years we gave God three years and he didn't answer our prayer so we're done that was our attitude they were coming not because they sincerely loved the Lord but they were coming because they wanted to get something from God now listen, I, I want you to come to church expecting something from God. I want to come to church expecting something from God. But I, I want to come 
expectantly, but I don't want to come demanding that, hey, I'm only going to come, God, if you give me what I think I want. I'm only going to come if you give me what I think I need. I'm only going to come if you'll do for me. That's not worshiping God. That's not the relationship that God wants, and that's not the God that, 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 that's not what God deserves. God deserves my worship and my praise whether he ever puts another meal on my table. God deserves my worship and praise whether he ever meets another need. And whether God, uh, whether God decides that, hey, I've done enough for you until you come into my presence at this moment or not, uh, that doesn't change the fact that he is deserving of my love and my praise. But is my relationship this morning simply dependent upon what I can get out of it? A lot of marriages that way too, by the way. A lot of relationships in all shapes and sizes that are that way. People are only engaged in them for what they can get out of it. There's no way to live and it's no way to be satisfying the Lord. Do I, do I call him Lord this morning? In Matthew chapter 7, in verses 21 through uh, 23, <clears throat> he says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. God is not here to be used. He's here to be worshipped and loved as he loves us. Do I call him Lord? Certainly I should call him Lord. Do I call him Savior? Certainly I call him Savior. Do I call him prophet? Yes, I call him prophet. But he's not just a prophet and he's not just a Savior and he's not just our Lord. Final question this morning. Do I call him God? Do we call him God? Do we see him as our awesome creator that I must worship? Do I see him this morning as that awesome presence and of whom I am not worthy? <coughs> in Isaiah, in chapter 6 and verses 1 through 8, and most of us know the passage well in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face. And with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And I also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, 
but understand that hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see you indeed, but perceive not. And what he's saying, Isaiah, you didn't see, you didn't perceive, you didn't understand, but now you've seen me on my throne, in my glory, in my holiness, and you understand, go and tell <coughs> that I'm an awesome creator. Even Jesus' disciples that walked with him at times struggled, though they had the right answer and Many occasions, Thomas particularly struggled at the end. And in John chapter 20, and verse 26, And after eight days, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. And Thomas had famously said, Unless I can put my, hands, my fingers in his hands and in his side, I will not believe. And then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And I'm just going to say this morning that I will never ever experience God on the level that he wants me to experience him until he becomes more to me than just a prophet, until he becomes more to me than my Savior, until he becomes more to me than a Lord, until I see Jesus Christ as God Almighty seated on his throne as my creator who I am to serve and to worship and to honor without, uh, without question and without uh, one I dare not disappoint, one that I would not walk away from because he is worthy then I'll never have God the way that God wants me to have him I don't want to be the kind of Christian that serves God for what he can do for me I don't want to be the kind of Christian that minimizes who Jesus is I want to be that one that says God I will I dare not question you Sometimes we revert to our childhood whenever God starts speaking to us and wanting us and implying in our heart that he wants us to do something specific or change the way that we go about this, that, or the other and, uh, and look at maybe I changed the way I valued something before and, uh, and I start getting uncomfortable and so what do I do? I start, why, why, why? Get around a two or three year old and they're just filled constantly with why, why, why? It's a good thing. You ought to answer those questions because if they don't ever understand why, they'll forsake it when they get older, for sure. But as a Christian, I dare not question him because he's God. See, I can't question him if I truly believe he's God. Why do you want me to do that, Lord? It doesn't matter. It's what I want you to do. Because I said so from God ought to be enough. And it may not be good parenting of teenagers, but it's great parenting from God. And I surrender to him. A God that I dare not question. Secondly, a God that I dare not disappoint. Do we go through life making decisions based upon how does God feel about this? What is God going to say about it? Am I disappointed in my father in heaven? Thirdly, I would say here, he is the God whose presence is the longing of my existence. See, there ought to come a point in the time in every Christian's life where Jesus is not just a prophet, where he's not just a savior, where he's not just our Lord and King, but where we see him as God and as such he becomes the longing of our soul. People don't serve God for a lifetime because they're longing for their own temporal desires to be fulfilled more than they're longing for, longing for the presence of God in their life. Do I long for him? I can't answer that question for you. 
Sometimes, honestly, I struggle to answer it for myself. I know what I should think, how I should feel, what I want to feel, what I want to think, but sometimes I have to look at my life and say, am I just convincing myself that I'm there? Am I just convincing myself that that's what I long for? Are you? <clears throat> we can look at each other and we can try to answer those questions. But those questions are answered very simply. How I live my life reveals how I answer the question. Jesus, the virgin-born Son of God, lied in a manger, grew, submitted to his authority. was baptized to John the Baptist, was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted of the devil, walked among us, was in all points tempted as we are and yet without sin, looked at our betrayal and had compassion upon us, offered himself a sacrifice for an ungrateful people. <clears throat> Cried from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Cried from the cross, it is finished. Tore the veil in two. Brought us into the throne room in the presence of God. Descended into Hades or Sheol, the place of the dead. Led captivity captive, bringing with him the keys of death and hell. Rose from the grave. <coughs> ascended to his Father on high, is seated at the right hand of God the Father, preparing a place for us and making intercession for us. Do I see that Jesus this morning as a prophet? Do I see him this morning as a Savior? Do I see him as Lord? Or do I long for him in my soul as my God? When I long for him, my life will change. Answer those questions. It's between you and the Lord. But how you live is the genuine answer. It's the one that speaks the truth.